Welcome to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay, fitting it all together to make teaching and learning in the junior grades more accessible, practical, and fun for both teachers and their students. Here's your host, teacher by day, mom of three, and curriculum creator of all the things from madlylearning.com, Patty Firth. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Teaching with Madly Learning. Today, we are going to talk about assessment and how you can use assessment in your inquiry-based classroom. Now, for many of us, when we think of assessment, it might cause a few feelings for ourselves. Perhaps you are somebody who, thinking about how you're going to collect assessment keeps you up at night, thinking about where you're going to find those marks, or about the overwhelming piles of paperwork that you need to get to. Perhaps you've got a bucket or a bin somewhere in your classroom that is just full of unmarked things that you had every intention of getting to. Or perhaps you are feeling like in order to justify those marks that you put on the report card, you need a piece of evidence that you could possibly send home to be able to justify that mark to parents or guardians. Or even more so, perhaps you are feeling a little bit overwhelmed at the thought of attempting inquiry because open-ended tasks where you've got multiple students doing multiple different activities makes you feel like you're going to need multiple rubrics in order to assess each and every variation that students come up with. However, the reality is, is that this is not always the case. When we are using assessment and inquiry, we are going to be using the triangulation of data. And it's my hope that through this video today, I'm going to give you some ideas, tips, and tricks on how you can assess inquiry effectively without doubling or tripling your workload in the process. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Patty, and I am a teacher here in Ontario, Canada. And we have a new episode of the Teaching with Manly Learning Show every single week, where we bring you tips and tricks for teaching in the junior grades using inquiry and differentiation and all things subject area related. It is our hope that through these videos, you are able to find tips and tricks that will help you to engage your students and make teaching and learning more fun for you and your students. So let's dig right in and talk about assessment when it comes to assessing in your inquiry-based classroom. If you are using inquiry-based pedagogies in your classroom, it typically means that your students are engaged in more self-selected activities where they have a lot of voice and choice in what is happening. You will have more hands-on interactive learning where conversations and activities are going to be happening. You probably are relying less so on heavy paper-based products where students are simply filling out worksheet after worksheet that you need to collect and mark every single day. Because of that, many teachers worry when they're using inquiry-based learning how exactly they're going to be able to justify their evaluation of students on, say, the report card when they don't have the same amount of evidence to be able to send home. However, for many of us, we consider evidence to be those paper-based products that we can simply mark and give a quantitative mark to. However, we don't need to base all of our assessment data on quantitative marks. We can use our professional judgment to determine a student's level of understanding using the triangulation of data. 
We have the data that we collect based on products, but we also have the observations and conversations that we have with and of students to help us form a whole well-rounded understanding of their ability to understand the concepts that we are evaluating them on. And anyway, in inquiry-based classroom, one of my favorite things about why I love using inquiry is because it allows you to have far more opportunities for assessment under the umbrellas of observation and conversation. It is also a way to decide that we can reduce the amount of assessment that we are marking when we go home. If we have a well-balanced form of assessment in our classroom, it means we are not over-reliant on product-based assessment data points in order to determine our marks. When we are reducing the amount of products or we're relying less heavily on the amount of products the students are producing and we're increasing the amount of observation and conversational data that we collect on students, it means that we are doing those observational and conversational assessments during instructional time. If two-thirds of our marking is done during instructional time, that leaves far less to be done at home time or during our prep time. So for that reason, I really like to look for opportunities where I can replace what I traditionally would use a product in order to assess that skill and look for opportunities to be able to use more observational and conversational data collection because in the very end of the day, it's gonna save me time and get some of my own free time back to help me create a better work-life balance. So I want to share with you three strategies that I use in my inquiry-based classroom in order to collect student data, specifically collecting observational and conversational data. I think as teachers, we're pretty good at collecting products. We can collect things and mark them and hand them back to students and record those in our assessment book. But I'm not saying that we should continue to do the same amount. We should look for less opportunities to be marking products and more opportunities to be marking observations and conversations. So the first way to do this is to use checklists. Now, even in an inquiry-based classroom, you can still use checklists to determine whether students are meeting targeted skills. So looking at the learning expectation that students are required to demonstrate the appropriate knowledge, understanding, thinking skills, and application skills related to that expectation. These expectations become the point of your checklist. Each week as you're presenting different aspects of the curriculum, you're presenting different learning goals, you're evaluating whether students can meet that learning goal. This is where checklists come into play because it allows us to use the variety of activities that we're going to do in our classroom, whether it's a hands-on activity, an interactive activity, a collaborative activity, or it's simply just an activity they're going to do independently. We are going to provide ourselves opportunities, multiple opportunities to collect the data to show mastery of each one of the students in our classroom. Now, this doesn't mean when we're looking at the triangulation of data that every single student in our classroom is going to have a equal 33% split between all of those. You're going to have students that are perhaps some of your higher performing students. You get reliable assessment data based on the products that they produce. They are good at being able to communicate their thinking orally, they're able to demonstrate it, and they're also able to communicate their understanding through written output. For those students, you're probably going to have the assessment data for them skewed a little bit more towards products versus conversations and observations 
because you understand that for that student, there seems to be a balance between those three different types of assessment. That when I talk with them, when I am getting their writing, then I'm able to see. These are also students that you can collect data in a bit different ways. For students that are struggling they're on special education IEPs or perhaps they're an ELL student, those students are probably going to be skewed more towards the observational and conversational data of assessment because their written output perhaps might be limited, so you need to collect data in other ways for those students. Now because you are kind of skewing their data towards the observational and conversational, you're able to collect evidence from them that they do understand the concepts that you're teaching, but you're getting them to show you in a bit different of a way. And it's okay to have that be skewed for different students based on that student's strengths and that student's learning needs. So in order to use checklists, again, I like to focus on the skills. And I will create a checklist or a look for for that lesson or series of lessons. And then I will create a paper that has blank boxes and in each box will be a student's name. And as I am observing them throughout the week or having conversations with them, I will make quick anecdotal notes within those boxes or put a check mark beside the students that I am meeting with or write quick notes. Sometimes I will just put a check mark beside the student that I'm seeing that day and perhaps use a different color for different days. And then at the end of that lesson during either five minutes at the end of class or during a prep, I will go back and write more detailed notes based on what I observed. So I can go back and say, okay, everyone with a purple check mark is somebody I observed today. I'm going to go back and actually write down in actual words that make sense to me two months from now what I saw today. So that's one way that I use checklists. The other way is simply literally just a checklist where I've got my class list down one side of the page and on the top I will have the different skills that I'm looking for and my only goal is to go around and check off the box. This is something that I like to do during math, especially if I'm teaching something like multiplication where they're using multiple different strategies. I might wanna know, number one, what is their preferred strategy? I also wanna know what strategies they're struggling with and what I'm seeing, so what I would do is as they're working independently on say their morning math task, I would walk around the room and look specifically for that student. Are they using the box strategy? Are they using the standard algorithm? Are they still struggling with one of the concepts? And when I see, when I observe their work as they're doing it, that they're able to work through it and I'm watching them solve it live in front of me, I'll just simply check off that, yep, they understand the box strategy so that we can move on. I don't need to pull them into a guided group for math to review the box strategy. But as I'm going through my class, it will tell me, okay, there are some students that do need that review. So I can pull them into a group and be able to talk about that concept just with those students. This also works well in say social studies, especially when you are getting them to understand different concepts such as can they understand the provinces and can they put the puzzle together? If you have them doing a puzzle of where the provinces go, where they're finding clues, you can be walking around and observing, do students understand the geography? Can they identify north, south, east, and west? That's something that I don't always have to have a product that the student just fills out that I have to take home and mark. Sure, I could give them the product to take home and mark, 
But if I reduce, if my goal here is to reduce some of the stuff I'm taking home to simplify my teaching life, then I can also be walking around and observing that skill as to whether or not they understand north, south, east, and west. I can walk around and ask them, show me where the north of Canada is, which province is in the western part of Canada. And as I ask them these questions, they can show me on a map as they're maybe coloring the map. Like They can show it to me and I can just check it off. And then it's done. They don't have to hand anything. I don't have to mark anything <laughs> other than just checking it off on my list that it's done. This also allows me to observe that, yes, in fact, they do understand this concept, that it's not simply a memorization. So perhaps I do have a product that I've marked but I also want to validate that product by seeing it. So maybe I want multiple ways in order to see that skill demonstrated. So I'm going to have the product that I'm gonna mark, but I'm also going to have that observational backup to say, yep, I watched them do this. I have a record of me watching them do this. I observed it, I checked it off on my list. Understands the cardinal directions, check, and we can move on from there because I've seen it happen. And because this is all done as part of the instruction, it's during instructional time, it means I'm not spending this time during my prep marking a paper, I'm not spending this time carrying loads and loads of papers home with me. It also means the students have that product in their notebook, so they have the map that they were building and coloring, but I don't have to then collect it and mark it. I can simply just check it off. I could let them know, oh great, you understand cardinal directions and put a check mark on their page right in that moment if I need to. But anytime I can take that marking that I did at home and I can transfer that into marking I can do in the moment is always going to be a win for you as a teacher. If you're looking at using digital, perhaps you have, say, an iPad that you walk around the room with, one of the things you can do instead of having paper is you can quickly create a Google form that has your students' names and then the look-fors you're looking for. You can have a checklist or note boxes that you write in. I've also seen teachers using Google Keep for this as well, but you can use digital tools to be able to track this the same. One of the benefits of being able to use, say, a spreadsheet or even Airtable for that matter, which is a spreadsheet, but like on steroids, it's kind of fantastic. But if you use the spreadsheet or a form to fill out, it allows you later to manipulate the data. So I could enter you know, information from student A, student B, student T, student L, student M, student O, student F, and I could put them in completely different order, and it could literally be happening every single day. But then when it comes to report card time, I can filter that data because it's digital. I can filter that data by saying, just show me the results for student F. And when I do that, it lets me see the information all together just for that student. So there is definitely an organizational benefit of your data if you are a digital person. However, there's no shame in doing it on paper and pencil and literally having a bucket where you dump all of your assessment notes in so that you can go back to it later. You really have to work on understanding what your best process is. And the best process for you is the one that you actually do. So now that you've got some checklists and you're able to collect that data, you've moved some of your marking so that you are now collecting observational and conversational data inside your instructional time using checklists, whether you're using checklists on paper or digital checklists to record what your students are doing. You can also have student teacher conferences. 
These are another method of how you can collect the observational and conversational data in the moment with your students. It also actually can allow you to mark some product work as well during that time, moving in your assessment practices into instructional time so that you're going to save your time for prep and home time for other tasks. The first is going to be a student-teacher conference. You can schedule student-teacher conferences. You do one or two student-teacher conferences per day, per subject, depending on how you structure. So if you're doing language where students have self-selected what they're writing, so if you're following the United Literacy Program, students can self-select their writing task for the week or the month, and you are going to conference with them one-on-one -on -one, once or twice a month. Now, when you're doing Doing this, you're marking their writing, so you're marking their product, you're having a conversation, and you are tracking your feedback, perhaps through a, a feedback form, which I find as being a really great tool, is having a form you fill out every time you conference with students that gives you a product for justification based on an observation and a conversation and a product that you've had. So Student-teacher conferences give you a tremendous amount of data, and they're all done during instructional time. You can conference with students to have them show you and demonstrate for you their understanding. So if you have a math concept that you are trying to have them show you how to do it, they can model it for you right there. Show me four groups of three with these manipulatives and students can quickly do it, show you and they can move on. And it's kind of a quick demonstration task right in front of you that can be considered a student teacher conference. You can also have check-ins where instead of students coming to you, you are going to check in with them. And these check-ins can happen throughout the day and you can quickly pop over to where they are with your little, oh, who do I have to check with today? And I'm going to go over and check in with them about this concept. Oh, as they're working, you're going to like, hey, show me what you're doing here. Explain to me what's happening. And they're going to talk to you about what they're doing, what's happening. And then you're just going to check it off that, yep, you've checked in with them. They have gotten that done. And instead of them coming to you, you can go to them and check off with them. You can also evaluate observations and conversations of some of your students during whole group discussions. So if you're having a whole group discussion, perhaps you're having a knowledge building circle with your students. Since the students in an inquiry classroom are doing a lot more of the talking, it's not just the teacher talking. So say you're doing an inside-outside circle on a different concept. So you're looking at the impact of early European explorers on indigenous communities. After students have done some research, they're going to participate in an inside-outside circle to discuss the impact that these events had on indigenous communities. So if this is the thing you're having. Students are the ones doing the talking. You're doing the observing and managing some of the chaos that could ensue. You're managing the class. But while students are talking, you're observing. And whether you're observing, you can be filming this conversation so that you can go back and reflect on it later, or you can be looking at who is participating in the conversation, what kind of things are they saying, are they demonstrating a solid understanding. If during these whole group discussions, you can collect some data on some of your students, it means later during independent time, you have less data to collect on all of your students. And there's just certain students you need to make an effort to actually go and see because they didn't share enough or a lot because maybe they're not comfortable sharing in a whole group situation. So you need to go check in with some of them, but you collected a whole bunch of information on say a third of your class because they love participating and sharing their knowledge. Collect that data when they're doing that. 
and then you have less people to go and check in on during independent tasks. Another strategy I like to do is have, when you're operating centers, say in science or even in math, if you're doing math centers or science centers to teach a concept, if they're doing an experiment center, pick one of them. So pick one science experiment that might be happening in your classroom that you think requires the most teacher support. And we run that as a guided center so that you can participate with the students, you can observe them, engage Engaging in that activity. When you have a guided group, you have more concentrated time to really spend and question and prompt and help the students see what they're doing. And that's a great way for you to be observing what's happening. And then as your students are rotating through the centers, you will have more opportunities to be collecting that data as they are working. Now, realistically, in a classroom, there's going to be times where your students are going to be working and you're going to be spending a lot of your time supporting different students who might need more one-on-one -on -one or reteaching. So ideally, we want to be able to differentiate our activities enough that makes our learning accessible for the majority of our students, that we have modified curriculum and modified activities that make it accessible so that we do have time for observation. So we definitely want to make our activities accessible to the widest variety of students possible, but there are going to come some times where you won't be able to scribe for every single student who has written output difficulties or you're not going to be able to get to every student because you're supporting one or two all the time. We want to make sure that those students that we're constantly supporting are able to access some aspect of the lesson so it frees us up a little bit. But in the event that we can't, one of the ways that we can still collect observational and conversational data is through video and audio. I always like to give video and audio as a tool that even my media students can use at any opportunity because sometimes written output is difficult, but they can record their voice or record them doing something. So if they have a difficult time showing or explaining to you how they solve a division problem, so they have a hard time justifying their thinking for a math problem, one of the easiest ways to get them to be able to do this independently so that you aren't scribing that for them is to record themselves solving the problem and talking through it. This way you can see what they're doing, see what's happening, and you can hear them talking through what they're doing so they don't have to then in turn justify the problem. You can help them to translate that into a justification if you need to, but it allows them to justify what they're doing as they're doing it. So allowing your students at any point in time, unless you're assessing specifically their ability to write, any other subject is fair game for allowing students to record their audio answers. One of the best tools that I'm really liking right now, especially for the ELLs that I support, is using Microsoft OneNote. Because you can put the text on the page, you can add audio, you can add video, you can add things over top of it. It's really flexible that way and student-friendly. I'm really liking Microsoft OneNote for this ability for students to add audio or video recordings right on top of, say, a worksheet without having to do a ton of app smashing, where they're opening up multiple apps to, in order to get something done. Now, this is gonna be an option for some students, but this is also an option for all students. All students should be able to record their audio or video. In fact, creating assignments where the task 
is to record their audio and video in some way is a great way for you to be collecting a product because you have the worksheet they actually did, but you also can watch them solve it and get them to think about it. Now, one of the best parts about marking a video instead of marking always a worksheet is number one, you can increase the speed of a video so you can watch it double speed, which means you can mark the same five minute video in two and a half minutes which is gonna save you time too. But I really like to create products or assignments or allow that as an option to get students to record their answers so that it simplifies what it is we're doing and provides me with a well-rounded piece of evidence of student learning. Assessment is a key part of our job, and in an inquiry-based classroom, our goal is to use the fact that our students are engaged in activities that meet their individual strengths as students. They're engaged in activities that have them engaged and working. It's accessible so a wider variety of students are able to access the learning that is happening in our classroom. And because we are not spending most of our day doing the talking, but we are spending most of our day doing the observing, supporting, and guiding. And because our role in an inquiry classroom is changed from a traditional model where the teacher has full 100% control and is doing most of the talking all day long, where the students are just passively consuming the content and moving on with their day, in an inquiry classroom, because our role as a teacher has changed, it provides more opportunities for us to collect and gather data for our students to be able to assess them accurately using the triangulation of data. Finding opportunities, whether it's through checklists, conversations with your students in student-teacher conference settings, or using and harnessing technology to help you record those observations and conversations with students so that you can address them later when you have the ability to do so will make assessment of your inquiry-based classroom that much easier and simpler. It does take a little bit to adjust to, and it is a bit of a learning curve, and it's important to remember that each teacher is different, and what works for some will not necessarily work for others, and it's about finding the nuggets that make sense to you and making it your own, figuring out what the best process is for you in order for you to be successful, and that is going to be the process that you actually are able to do consistently day after day after day. As my gift to you to help you track some of the data that you're using in your inquiry classroom, I've put together a little freebie for you that goes through some different criteria for assessment in inquiry, including ideas on what kind of things you can assess on the four categories of achievement, including knowledge, thinking, communication, and application, as well as different ideas that we have talked about in today's video, including assessments that you can conduct for observations, conversations, and products, as well as some great tracking pages that you can use in your classroom to track your students' progress including a gathering data tracker, which will give you some criteria for tracking what your students are able to do, as well as a little bit more detailed data tracking for individual students, status of the class for formative assessment with learning outcomes and a checklist for your students to just check off when they meet those learning outcomes, as well as the blank data tracking for students to be able to put one student per box and write little anecdotal notes for your students, and then a conferencing note page so that you can track the conversations that you have with your students when you're conducting one-on-one -on -one or small group conferencing sessions.
To get this download, go to the show page at www.madlylearning.com forward slash 177 to download your copy of the Inquiry Data Tracking and Assessment Tool. It's my hope that this video is giving you some ideas of how you can increase your ability to assess your students in your inquiry-based classroom. Thank you so much for joining me and stay tuned next week. We have another episode coming your way on Teaching with Madly Learning. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Teaching with Madly Learning podcast replay. Join me on www.madlylearning.com for more information on all things teaching in the junior grades. Don't forget, you can always catch this show on the Madly Learning YouTube channel. See you next week for another replay episode of Teaching with Madly Learning.